Section number 42 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Appendix The Countess de Morat by James Planchet. Henriette Julie de Castelnau, daughter of Michel, second Marquis de Castelnau, governor of Brest, and granddaughter by the mother's side to the Count de Aignan, Marshal of France, was born at Brest in 1670. At the age of sixteen she came to Paris in the costume worn by the peasants in Brittany the language of which province she spoke very fluently. Her appearance in this dress caused such a sensation that the queen desired her to wear it on her presentation at court. She married Nicholas, Count de Moret, colonel of infantry and brigadier de arms de Roy, descended from a family established in Auvergne before 1300 and that afterwards passed into Dauphine, being suspected by Madame de Maintenon of having been part author of a libel in which all the persons composing the court of Louis the Fourteenth in 1694 were caricatured or insulted, she was banished to Auc Department de Jure after the death of Louis the Fourteenth, the regent Duke of Orleans, at the request of Madame de Parbert, recalled Madame de Maret in seventeen fifteen. She did not, however, long enjoy her return to Paris, as she died at her chateau Bazdière in Maine the following year, seventeen sixteen, at the early age of forty six. She was the author of many works, both in prose and verse, but is best known by her Conte de Fee, six of the most popular of which are here translated. Four of these, Le Parfait en moi, Angulette, Jeune et Belle, and Le Palais de la Vengeance, were printed in 1766 and again in 1817 in the collection of fairy tales attributed to the Countess de Aulnoy, of whom Madame de Marat was the contemporary, but certainly not the rival. Her stories have more the character of romances and novels than fairy tales, with a strong infusion of sentiment, such as to be found in the writings of Madame de Segudry, Mademoiselle de Lafayette, the Countess de Auchenil, and others of that period. The plots of them were most probably taken from Les Contes in Jeans, Quelque Rempli de l'Adresse, Quant Inventé de la Troubadours, for to this she is specially invited in the verses at the end of the prose story of L'Andrante Princesse, which is dedicated to her and attributed to Perrault. It has been shown, however, that if that version of La Androte Princesse 
were really written by him it was not published till 1742, 39 years after the death of the reputed author, and 26 after the death of the lady to whom it is dedicated. Perfect Love Le Parfait Amour is a story exhibiting considerable talent, although deficient in those lively sallies, those amusing whimsicalities and allusions to the manners and dresses of the period which give so much piquancy to the fairy tales of Perrault and the more elaborate compositions of Madame de Aulnoy. The interest is entirely of a serious character, but the magic ring, with its power over the four elements, the value of which is destroyed by the too hasty wish of the lover, is an ingenious and dramatic idea, and the fatal lamps a true affecting situation. This is the first fairy tale that gives us a picture of the gnomes and their subterraneous magnificence a superstition existing all over Europe, the trolls, or underground men of the north, the little people and the ground mannequins of Germany, and the core or corrid of Brittany, the wise and prudent little people who keep warm by their fine fires many a fathom down, within the inmost rocks, pure native gold, and the rock crystals, shaped like towers, clear, transparent, gleam with colors thousandfold, through the fair palace and the little folks, so happy and so gay, amuse themselves, sometimes with singing. And accordingly we find them singing the charms of Irolite, and entertaining the lovers with une musique forte harmonieuse, mais un peu barbare. Angulette Angulette is a story of the same character as Le Parfait Amour. The interest is wholly serious and the termination tragical, reminding one by the transformation of the victims into trees of the catastrophe of the Yellow Dwarf of Madame de Aulnoy. The inconsistency of Atmir is very naturally drawn, and there is considerable merit in the general conduct of the story. Young and Handsome Jeune et Belle might almost be placed amongst the pastoral romances of de Urfi and George de Montemayor. It is full of Watu-like tableaux, many of them suggested probably to the writer as to the painter of the Fete Champette, so much in vogue during the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries as the court of Versailles. The sudden and unexpected introduction of Zephyr at the very close of the story as the Du and Machina is quite in accordance with the taste of the period, though much out of place in a fairy tale. It is not, however, for me to find fault with it, as it afforded me a hint for a character which enabled Mr. Robson to display the versatility of his genius in the last of that long series of extravaganzas I have already alluded to. 
In the collection above mentioned, this tale was substituted for Madame d'Aulnoy's Serpentine Vert, the denouncement of which is also produced by the congruous introduction of mythological personages. The Palace of Vengeance Le Palais de Vengeance was printed in the collection as Madame d'Aulnoy's under the title of the Palace of Revenge. It is principally remarkable for its satirical conclusion, a very original one for a fairy tale, as the lovers are married and do not live happily ever afterwards. The Prince of Leaves Le Prince de la Fille is, to my best of knowledge, presented for the first time in an English garb. It is more of a fairy tale than the four preceding it, and appears to me to have been suggested to Madame de Murat by her residence at Auch, which indeed is most likely to have been written. The natural history of the turquoise has been newly popularized by the publications of Chardin and other Oriental travelers, and more particularly by that of a book by Bothius de Boot, Le Parfait Joliet, Lyons, 1644, the turquoise de la Ville Roche that Madame de Murat speaks of is a stone found near Nishapur and Karasan in Persia, the true oriental turquoise, whilst those called de la Nouvelle Roche are not stones, but petrified bones, and are found in Europe, particularly in France, at Auch, the very place to which Madame de Moret was exiled, and near Sinmore in the Department de Jure, and in the Nivermain, according to the account of Remur in the Memoir de l'Académie, 1715. Turquoises were formerly very highly prized, and all kinds of virtues and properties attributed to them, the greater part of which are fabulous, although detailed gravely by de Boot, who was physician to Rodolf II, Emperor of Germany. The jewelers, even in his day, took great pains to distinguish between those that retained their color and those that turned green. A fine, unchanging turquoise, the size of a filbert, sold in that day for two hundred thalers and upwards. The turquoise possesses such attractions, says de Boot, that men do not think their hands are well adorned nor their magnificence sufficiently displayed, if they are not decked with some of their finest. The name is supposed to have been derived from Turkey, the country from which they were probably first imported, but others deduce it from Turchino, a name given by Italians to a particular blue. Even at this day the discoloration or loss of a turquoise is considered a prognostication of evil. The Fortunate Punishment Le Herez Pien is also, I believe, new to the English reader. It is an exceedingly graceful story, and denouncement is novel as well as ingenious. The little animal in which the unfortunate Nami 
is transformed is not specified by the author, but from an allusion to its manière de marcher. I suppose it to be a crayfish, a favorite with the writers of fairy tales. End of section 42. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.